Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word, how it gives us light. It is a light unto our path. And you guide and direct by that. You give us wisdom. You help us to not be those fools or those mockers, but you fill us so that we are wise in the things of your kingdom and also in how we live in this world. We give you thanks for that, Lord, for without that, we would not have a roadmap. We would not have a guidebook. We would be left alone without a shepherd. But we recognize you as our shepherd, the one who cares for us, feeds us, provides everything we need according to your riches and glory. And Father, we pray that you would fill us full of your spirit, that we would carry around with us the love that you have for everyone. May that be a moniker over our lives that we love just like you. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in Matthew chapter 16. If you would like to turn in your Bibles there or follow along on the monitor. Matthew chapter 16, in the last few verses of that chapter, verses 24 through 28, that's where we're going to pick it up. Jesus was talking to his disciples. And he said in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, I focused on this a little bit last week, but I just want to make sure we tack this one down fairly well. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Now, there was a specific purpose for the cross. It was to kill somebody, and it was to kill them in such a way that it was an agonizing death. The person who was crucified would die through asphyxiation. They would not be able to breathe eventually. And their arms, their shoulders would dislocate as the weight of their body would be pulling down. And then they would take their knees, their legs, their thighs, and they would push up to get a breath. And then they would slump back down again. And they'd find themselves lacking oxygen. That would eventually take days for the person to die. And their organs would shut down. And their heart usually would stop working because of the lack of air. And so that's what the cross is all about. If Jesus says, pick up your cross, he is simply saying, I want you to be crucified. Now, the world's depiction of what we're supposed to do to be a success is anything but crucify the self. You know, whether it's sayings that are out there, I think there was a song that said, I am woman, hear me roar, something like that. And uh, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And you have millions being made by people like Tony Robbins, who has his own problems right now, 
But people go and listen to him and what they can do and what they can accomplish and you can and I will and si se puede, you know, that's what they end up saying out there. We can do it and it's not a reliance on God, it's reliance on self and God says, no, I want that self to be crucified. Now that is not a message that appeals to the world. What do you mean I have to be crucified? You you actually want me to lay down voluntarily on a cross, be hung up for several days, go through agony, be go through asphyxiation, not be able to breathe and die. That's what you want. That's what Christ was saying. And the world rejects that message. The world rejects the message because they want to focus on the self. If we surrender our lives, Jesus says we will actually find life. But if we seek to save our lives, we lose them. This is a profound statement. Instead of pursuing the things of the world, we are to follow Christ. To pursue the things of the world is vanity and useless. If you just read the book of Ecclesiastes, the wise man, King Solomon, at the end of that, he said, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. And there's only th- two things to do in this life that he came to. And he said, you know, serve God, love him, and find enjoyment in the work that you do under the sun all the days of your life. That's it. That, that's the only thing he said to do because everything we have here is passing away. And what can we give to God or what can we offer him in exchange for eternal life? It's like we're working for something in this world and maybe I can help God with this. God doesn't need anything that we possess. But yet there is this idea, even in the Christian church, that we can gain lots for the kingdom. Instead of saying, God, whatever you want me to gain, it's already yours. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to do my best at everything that I do. But it is all yours. It's kind of like when we tithe or give. The person who has a question about that, the person who is young, usually says something like, well, how much do I give? And that's not the right question. The question is, how much do I keep? Because that is what God focuses on, that everything that you possess is not your own. Everything I possess, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God, and it's supposed to be used for his purposes. And we're not to focus simply on ourselves and what we can gain in this life. The degree to which we die to self, we will be rewarded to that same degree. Reward is proportional to sacrifice. So the more you sacrifice here, the more Christ will reward each one of us when we get to heaven. If we take up our cross, that's what we're supposed to do. We lose our lives. We cannot buy favor from God or reward or salvation or anything from this world based on what we accumulate here. And the Lord, again, will reward those who conduct themselves like Christ, which is namely selflessly. Christ only did the will of the Father. He did not do his own will. His will was one with the Father. Just as Jesus went willingly to Golgotha, the place of the cross where he is crucified, practically speaking, what does that mean? It means he gave up everything. He goes, God, whatever you want. If you want me to die for your purposes, I'm going to die for your purposes. Now, I've already told you last week a little 
practice that you can make? I already said, try not using the personal pronoun in the first person singular, I. I don't know how successful if you tried that, you were. And I also said, try not eating for two days and see how your body handles that. Your body would scream at you and yell at you and make you eat something or cause you a lot of misery. And there, these things are only little exercises with little consequence. That, that's just a practice to try to get into the mode of what is it like to be selfless? Well, we are always to ask, what is the will of the Father in anything that we do? The Bible has clear answers in every areas, area of our lives that make a difference, that are consequential. For instance... Finances. Does God talk about finances? Well, certainly he does. He talks about, for instance, giving to the church, set aside a sum of money and keeping with your income that when Paul came to see the church in Corinth, they would not have to receive an offering. And so he goes, you know, give in the Old Testament. It's filled with that. What about uh, saving up? Does it say to save up for yourselves? Yeah, well, Scripture says that we're supposed to save up money for our children or assets for our children. It does say that. It also says we're supposed to have a job and save us some money so that we might have something to share with others who are there. It also tells us the wicked man borrows and does not repay, and that concerns bankruptcy. We're not to get to the point where we borrow so much money that we get in trouble and we have to file bankruptcy. So it's clear as far as finances are concerned what we're supposed to do. It says we're not the fool spends all that he has. We're not supposed to do that. So God just, he defines it. He gives a couple of columns, pillars that we're supposed to follow. If we follow those things, we're going to be okay. Also marriage. God spells out for us everything we need to know about marriage. He tells us things like, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others, including your spouse, so that it may benefit when they listen to you. The husbands are not supposed to be harsh with their wives. Their wives are supposed to be respectful and submissive to their husbands. And all of these things have been spelled out to us. The wife is not supposed to withhold a physical relationship from her husband and vice versa. The husband with the wife, that's the way it's supposed to happen. There's supposed to be an agreement when they raise children. We're supposed to instruct our children in the ways of the Lord. So he tells us how the family unit is supposed to operate. He says you're supposed to get married and never to divorce. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if you married a divorced woman, then you commit adultery. And he says that is not God's ideal. He spells it out for us, what we're supposed to do. Now, so far, who in here has not ever overspent? I'm guilty just like you. I really want this. And you go buy it, right? Have I ever been harsh with my wife? Yes, I have. And I shouldn't be. Have I ever failed to instruct my kids? Yes, I have. But you know, God has a tendency to bless us in spite of the mistakes that we have made. And he goes, I'm going to bless you anyhow. You get grace and you get mercy. That's what you get. And it's wonderful, but God still gives us direction. What about decision-making? Always pray concerning major choices in our lives. If they are not already spelled out in Scripture or a prohibition is not given. For instance, school. Are we supposed to go to school? Would it be beneficial to go to school? What are the reasons behind that? Marriage, friendships, relationships. Is somebody living with somebody else outside of marriage? Is that good? 
Are we avoiding all appearances of evil, even a hint of sexual immorality? Are we doing that? We're, we're supposed to receive that guidance from the Lord. What about discipleship? Are we really on the road to becoming disciples? What about work? Is it God's will that you work or change jobs or go to another city? What about rest and relaxation? Does God give us guidance on that? Did Jesus ever take a break? He certainly did. What about service to others and ministry, etc.? All of these things, God has spelled out what we're supposed to do based on his teaching and what we believe. Our beliefs are to be submissive to what God teaches. We are not to hold to what we want to be right. If we do that, we will fall into error. Scripture even says that when we seek after God in all these areas of life, if we ask anything according to his will, we get it. Now, if we're not asking, we're not getting. James says that. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask to heap it upon yourself. And God says, no, that's not what you're supposed to ask for. You ask for things that are in accordance with God's will. First John 5, verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. So I ask, what if you went to God and said, God, make me a spiritual giant. Now, do you think that that would be in accordance with God's will? Oh, yes. What if you went to God and said, God, give me patience. Do you think he'll meet you and give you trials to exercise patience? Yes. If, if, if you say, God, make me a soldier that is humble in your sight, in your kingdom. What does a soldier do? Fights. Fights for the souls of those who are around you. Fights for the maturing of the saints. Puts their effort forward. All of these things, if you ask in accordance with God's will, you can be guaranteed you're going to get it. Now, if you say something like, God, make me famous for your kingdom. That's not exactly a humble prayer to ask, is it? No, it's like you're wanting something for yourself. Or if I prayed it, I would be asking something for myself. And God says, don't do that. So we have all made mistakes, for instance, as couples. No one is perfect. There's not one couple in here that says they have done, uh, can't say they've done everything right. Now, I want to tell you a story of one couple. And I'm going to use this to relate back to God if we don't do what God wants us to do. If we're not submissive to him, if we don't crucify ourselves and make his desires our desires. This one couple, this is over 35 years ago. This one couple, and we were friends with them. We've lost touch over the years, but we were friends with them. And... The man in the relationship, they hadn't been married too long. He was going to garage sales. They went to this garage sale and he saw all, 35 years ago, he saw all this scuba equipment. He decided to buy it to the tune of several hundred dollars. He didn't ask his wife about it. And of course, I don't need to explain to you what kind of problems that may have caused. And so they, they came, and, and we were not in ministry. We were just going to church, and they were just friends. And by the way, I want to reiterate, 
just because they had a problem didn't mean we didn't have problems or anybody else has problems. Everybody has problems. This was just theirs. And so he got into a discussion with his wife about this. And his wife, you know, she came to us like, you know, aren't you supposed to be a good steward over the finances you have? And if you spend this money, then there's not money for bills. And I'm going, makes sense. You want to make sure you have money for bills? You know what he said? Well, how about you just be submissive to me, let me buy it, and we'll find out if God really was ordaining that I should buy this scuba equipment or not. Now, being this side of that age in my spiritual walk, even back then I could tell, I don't think this is the right answer. I think you're going to have problems. Now, with him not talking to his wife about it, it created a riff. He just did what he wanted to. Now, I'm not saying that his wife is God. But what I am saying is, he soured the relationship by his behavior. And if we do things based on self-motivation, we can sour our relationship with God. We miss out on the blessing of God if we're not submissive to him. If we just say, I'm going to do this, and no one's going to stop me. And if someone has a problem with it, well, too bad. And if you say that inside of a marriage, oh, it's going to be too bad for you, buddy, you know, if, if you're doing something like that. And so it's this idea of relationship with God. God points the direction, and he tells us, if you do this, it's going to be good for you. Even though it may be a little difficult, this will result in a benefit to you, and you won't have to worry about it so much. The relationship, you're still going to have trials, but you don't need to add the trials in your life needlessly. So he says, if you crucify the self, if you make God's desires your desires, then things will go well. So picking up the cross means giving preeminence to Jesus in all areas of our lives. It means giving up our will and what we want for ourselves and those around us. And we can cloak our desires and say, well, I'm doing it for someone else. Now, God can see right through that. God is not blind by these things. And Jesus never wants for us what we want for ourselves if it is grounded in selfish pursuits. God never wants those things. Verse 25 here from Scripture, uh, you know, I didn't put down the scriptural reference. It says, oh no, this is chapter 16. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good is it? Or what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, let's, let's give another example of this. There are people that live for self. We probably all know someone, it's probably us, that lives for self. Even God says that, we have not failed to love ourselves. We love ourselves. We feed ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Unless we have some type of mental deficiency, we do things to benefit ourselves. And we're supposed to take care of ourselves. But we don't want to get to the point where we love ourselves so much that there's nothing else which is out there. 
for instance, the more we gain, the less concerned we become about the things in this life. And I'm talking financially. The more money you gain, the less worry you usually possess. And God says, now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So no matter how much you have or how much you possess, you shouldn't worry about that. Remember the rich young ruler? He did everything that the law required him to do, and he said, what do I lack? And Jesus said, sell all your wealth, all your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have great reward in heaven. And if he would have done that, his entry into heaven would have been huge if he would have given away 100% of what he possessed. You know, there are several billionaires right now. Do you know who the number one person in the world is, the richest person in the world right now? Jeff Bezos. Yeah, you know how much he has? He has $112 billion. Billion with a B. I like B, Bill, Yen. $100 billion is what he has. If you look at Microsoft, Bill Gates, and you think, well, how much does he have? He has $90 billion. Just a pittance compared to Jeff Bezos. Bezos has so much money, Bill Gates only has $90 million. Well, what about Warren Buffett? Warren Buffett, very wealthy man, he has $84 billion. I mean, could you ever spend so much? You couldn't spend that much money. There, there's no way in your lifetime. Oh, what about Mark Zuckerberg? $71 billion. All these guys are billionaires. Who do they hang out with? I'm sorry, you only have 100 grand, man. I can't hang out with you. You know, they have so much money, they have to sequester themselves because everybody wants some of it and everybody in the world is focusing on these guys. Well, what if you wanted to examine them on a personal level? If they were like the rich young ruler and Jesus went to them and said, sell all you have and you'll have great reward in heaven if you give it to the poor. You want to know how much these guys give? I knew you did, so I looked it up. 71%. Now, I have to qualify this. I don't know if they're making these estimates based on their income or their established wealth. It is unclear. It's like how much they make a year. Warren Buffett gives 71% away. Now, I don't know if, and I'm pretty impressed, 71%. But my first thought is, well, that's off of what you make every year. You already have $84 billion just sitting there. I don't think he has given away $84 billion or 70, 71% of that. And so when they tell us they're giving away a lot, well, they still have this bucket, and the bucket is as big as the United States. I mean, that's how much they owe or own. So he gives away 71%. I thought, wow, that is notable that he gives away so much. The next person, Bill Gates gives away 22%. Still, that's nothing to shake a stick at. 
you know, 22% of his income, I believe it would be his income that he gives away, that's millions and millions of dollars that he's given away. Mark Zuckerberg, if you had to guess, how much does Mark Zuckerberg give away to charity? 2.9%. Yeah, now we think 2.9%. Before we get too all hyped up, ask yourself, how much do you give? I ask myself, how much do I give? Am I Mark Zuckerberg or am I Warren Buffett? Now, see, we can easily point the fingers at these people because they live for themselves and they don't give what they have away. And if they did, they did it in the name of Christ, they would have great reward in heaven. Well, the final one, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. You want to know how much he gives away? 0.01%. Now, see, we look at that and we go, oh, you stingy man, how Well, he just lost half of his wealth because he went through a divorce. But still, he's going to make it up next week. You know, it'll just come back in towards him. And so these people, these men, I dare say they're not living for Christ. They're living for themselves. They buy properties everywhere they buy. They invest everywhere and they're living for themselves. Now, that's on a scale that is above any one of us in here. But this idea that they live for themselves and not for Christ. And I'm giving you an example of somebody in the world. Christ says, I believe. Don't be like that. Don't focus solely on your life. And You know, there's real battles going on right now in the billionaire category. Who can get the biggest yacht and how many stories it has. You know, there's a glut of multi-million dollar mansions in the L.A. area. They don't know what to do. There's so many of them up there. And it's just, it's overwhelming how much we are living for ourselves and gaining all this wealth. And God says, not just with wealth either. It's the selfish pursuits in life, whether we have hobbies or ideas that we want to follow, and they may be God-ordained, I don't know. But it's the idea that that takes precedent over crucifying ourselves. So, a reward, we want to make sure we pass it on to heaven. In Proverbs 11, verse 8, it says, The wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. God is going to come back and reward us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how we gain reward in heaven, is be willing to suffer the persecution of following Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, that I just read, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So the things that we do, as I started the message, the things that we do, like inside the church, in ministry, outside the church, ministering to others, God will reward us for that. If we do nothing Guess how much reward we have? It's like, Job, you get into heaven by the skin of your teeth. The reason I'm telling you this is so that when you get to heaven, you don't start looking around for your wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones that God's going to put a torch to because it's only going to be wood, hay, and stubble. 
There's not going to be any gold, silver, precious stones. And I don't say this to you so that you'll feel guilty when you leave. I say this to you so that you know and you can be confident you are storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven, just as Scripture says. It has nothing to do with salvation. This only has to do with discipleship. Ephesians 6, 8 says, Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he be slave or free. Let me ask you this. The woman who serves all of her life in church, and she's a prayer warrior, and she has the gift of helps, and she serves, serves, serves. Who do you think is going to get more in heaven, her or Jeff Bezos? Goes without saying. That woman. It's like the woman who gave two pennies, dropped it in the offering in the temple. She gave more than all the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and God is going to reward her for faithfulness. It's the idea that the way up to glorification, which we're all going to experience, is the way down. If you take the way down, being humble and making God's will your will, you'll be blessed. But the way down is the way up. That's how it works. So the way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. Doesn't that make sense in the world? If you said that to somebody in the world, they go, what? are you talking about if they don't have the context of what scripture lets us know so god will reward us according to what we have done and according to his terms and not ours even elihu when he is talking with job he said should god then reward you on your terms if we start saying things like i'm gonna do this for god i'll give you an example god I'm going to buy $1,000 in lottery tickets because if I win it, then you'll be able to be blessed. <laughs> you know, we, we make these promises and such. And by the way, on something like that, I think it's just immaturity. It's not something that the person goes out and thinks that they're actually sinning or creating a great big error. I think it's just immaturity. The way that we look at God, we make up things in our own terms. We say, God, I'm going to bless you. Then in turn, I'll be blessed. When I get to heaven, I'll have a great reward if I just play the lottery. You know, something like that. No, it, it, it doesn't work that way. God can bless. I mean, literally, you can be driving from here over to Texas, pull off the side of the road, and there's going to be a box of gold sitting there if he wants you to have it. Remember Peter? He threw a line into the Sea of Galilee, and he brought it back, and what was in the fish's mouth? A gold coin to pay the tax. God can have... You could go home, and there could be black gold bubbling up in your backyard, and God could just bless you like that if he chooses to do so. And you might say, God, I want to sign up. I want the black gold in my backyard. And if God says, no, it's not my will that you would have that. It's my will that you live at the state you are at right now. Now, some of that may be because we made foolish decisions. If it's a little lower or a little higher, if you made wise decisions, that's okay. But God is still working in a providential way. He leads us where we need to go as long as we're submissive to him. Now, going on with this, in verse 28, 28 should have been part of chapter 17, verse 28 I'm talking about. It says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the coming of the Son, or the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Some took that to mean that 
they would exist until Jesus comes back on the day of the Lord of the rapture of the church. And it's a misnomer. That's a misinterpretation of scripture. He was referring to the event that takes place next. Jesus showing up in all of his glory with Moses and Elijah there and Peter, James, and John. And I'm going to read what takes place here. Verse 1 says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as a light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. First, what happened to Jesus? He was transformed. He changed his form. The word that is used in the Greek is metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis, where you take the worm, the chrysalis, the butterfly. He was transformed in their sight. It was quite a happening. Now, this happened right after the end, or right before the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in the time frame. Remember, they just said that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah. And Jesus told Peter, the Lord has revealed this to you, and keep it under wraps. Don't tell anybody. Same thing with this Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus told Peter, James, and John, do not talk about this until after the resurrection and he did this because there there are several times that people wanted to make jesus king and he was resisting that it wasn't his time yet and he's still king it just wasn't his time to rule and reign in jerusalem that time is yet future and so he wanted to forestall he wanted to put off that particular act could you imagine if the three disciples came back peter james and john the inner circle and they said guess what happened Jesus transformed and he was as white as lightning. It was just incredible. And Moses and Elijah, and they would have just gone nuts. Now, it doesn't say which mountain this took place on. Some say it's Mount Tabor. And it, it, I don't know. I think it was a high mountain like Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is snow capped. The water comes from Mount Hermon. It goes down under the ground. It comes out in three different points. It supplies the Jordan River with its water. And it's a high mountain. And you can see it from Israel. From northern Israel, you can see it. It's so high. Kind of like if you've been to Seattle, Washington. You look out there, and there's this really big mountain in this mountain range, which is out there. And the same thing would have been the case for where Jesus was taking these guys. So it was probably Mount Hermon. Now, why Peter, James, and John, and why Moses and Elijah? You have Peter, James, and John. How many witnesses do you need to establish something? Two or three, according to Scripture. Like a man could not be convicted of a capital crime unless there are two or three witnesses to bear witness to what had taken place. Otherwise, the person would get off scot-free. Well, why Moses and Elijah? Well, one represented the law. And the other represented the prophets. Twelve times in the gospel, Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, or a derivation of that, where he's talking about the law and the prophets. So you have the three witnesses in the New Testament that are alive, walking amongst people, and that would be needed to establish the fact that this had taken place. Then you have Moses and Elijah, one representing the Old Testament law and one representing the Old Testament prophets because Elijah was considered to be the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. 
Now, I'm going to expand a little bit more on this next week because we're going to receive communion here. But Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God in all of his glory to the disciples which were there. And he did this for their benefit and also for ours, that they would be able to willingly give up their lives, live a selfless existence, which the disciples ended up doing because they had been with Jesus. They saw who he was. They had understood his teaching. And that's the route we're supposed to take. Even though we haven't seen Jesus face to face, we see who he is in the pages of scripture. We understand that he is, in fact, the divine son of God. And he promised us he's coming back. Our task is simple. Pick up our cross daily. My prayer for you and for me is that we can actually do that. That we can lay our lives down, be willing to be crucified in our desires, and it is the fight of our lives. But great will be our reward. And so what we're going to do at this time If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he invites us to receive communion. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he says, you know, probably should refrain. Because we are recognizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by receiving these elements. Of course, the bread refers to the body of Christ that we receive. And the cup, the juice, refers to the blood that takes away, washes away all of our sins. And so at this time, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to play a song. And as we're playing that song, if you need to confess and say, Lord, you know, I've been a bit selfish and it's been a sin, the Lord will forgive us. He's faithful and just to do that. And if you need to accept him as your Lord and Savior because you want to live in heaven and eternal bliss with him, you just say, Jesus, I believe you are Lord. I believe that you died on the cross and you rose on the third day. Please save me from my sins. That's all that needs to be said. And so we're going to turn down the center lights. And after the song starts playing, then the men will come up and they will grab the elements here and they'll pass them out. And I would ask that you would hold on to them so we can all participate in receiving them together.